Ephesians chapter 2, as you're, as you're making your way there. Um, this past week, uh, I've actually been spending a little bit of time thinking about the, the cultural phenomenon known as the before and after photo. So if you're connected to social media, and I know the vast majority of you are, um, you'll have a steady influx of this in your weekly diet. Lots of before and after photos. Some of them are you know, physical appearance related. Here's what I used to look like. Here's what I look like now. Uh, a lot of them, a lot of them have to do with house projects. Uh, Shay and I have uh, owned our home for a, a little more than three years now. And when we bought our house, we knew that we were going to have to do a lot of work to it. We knew that there were a lot of projects that we were going to have to tackle uh, in that house. And so over the past couple of years, we've, we've paid a lot of attention to examples of how other people are fixing up parts of their home and updating parts of their home. And in doing so, I've come to the conclusion that few things in this world create more discontent in life than HGTV and Pinterest. <laughs> few things create more discontent in life than those two things. Because, because in those places, you see how they update things. You see the before and after photos, and they're fantastic. You, you want what the after photo looks like. But you miss a lot when all you look at is a before and after photo. Uh, you miss what it actually takes to go from the before to the after. And for, for me in my own house project, something that I should have learned a long time ago but seemed to just never quite learn is that it always takes me like 10 times longer than I think it's going to take to do a project like that. And as the project unfolds, that, you know, my house becomes chaotic and really messy. You know, stuff gets dirty and stuff gets left out and we have to put tools away every night because we've got little kids and then bring it back out the next day. Uh, nothing goes, or very few things at least, go according to, to how I plan them. And at least in certain moments, that makes me really discouraged or it makes me even angry. You know, utter, I utter a, a choice word or, or two or 20, depending on what, what it is. Uh, sometimes I want to give up. And sometimes I have, I have given up and just hired somebody else to do it to do it instead. You don't see any of that in a before and after photo. It just looks pretty at the end, and you're like, hey, great job, your house looks nice. You don't see any of the process that it takes to, to get there. So we're continuing this series in Ephesians and coming to Ephesians chapter 2. And this passage that we're in today, Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, for centuries in the history of the church, has been appreciated for its ability to beautifully and concisely articulate the, the, the radical difference that the gospel of Jesus Christ makes. It's a great, concise summary, and we could actually even view it this way, of a before and after photo of the Christian life. And I hope that we're going to see that this morning. I hope we're going to see the, the stark contrast of the before and the after. But as we glimpse that, you know, as we see the, the awesomeness of the difference between who we were and who we are, we can't forget what we're always likely to forget when we look at before and after photos, that, that our experience of this will be long and will be messy and will be the opposite of a quick fix. And I think that in a lot of ways, you know, present-day Christianity shoots itself in the foot when we only show the before and after photos of our lives and we don't actually invite people into what it actually looks like to go from that to that. You know, the, the, the transformation that Paul speaks about here that we're going to read in just a second, it's so very real. But if that's all we ever let people see, it will come across as so very shallow or inauthentic. 
So even if this is the hundredth time for you that you've heard these words from Ephesians chapter 2, my prayer is that God would just give us fresh ears, clear eyes to really hear what he's and see what he's saying in his word this morning. So follow along with me. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved, through faith, And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of work so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is God's word. Let me pray for us. Jesus, would you help us to see who we were compared to who we are? because of your work, and may our appreciation for you deepen this morning as we see that contrast. Would you help us, Jesus, to to not forget what it actually takes, what the cost that you pay to go from the before to the after, and the experience that we go through to go from the before to the after. This is a beautiful picture of your good work and the goodness of the news that it is. The gospel is good news and it is truly good. We see that here. So help us to really uh, grasp that together this morning uh, and do the work of your grace in our hearts today as we need it each and every day. We pray that in your name. Amen. So you probably heard this as we read those words. This This is a passage of contrasts. Paul is contrasting our condition as people left to ourselves, and then our condition as people called in Christ. But in addition to looking at those two sides, those before and after pictures, Paul also is going to focus on how we get from one to the other. And so in line with that, we want to look at this passage not in two parts, but in, but in three. We're going to look at pervasive death. And then we're going to look at invasive love. And then finally, we'll talk about exhaustive grace. Pervasive death, invasive love, exhaustive grace. So first, let's talk about pervasive death. The first four verses of this passage, they paint a picture of what our lives are like apart from this being called in Christ that Paul is talking about through this whole letter. And the picture that Paul paints here, it's not good. For one, we're dead. You were dead. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. Trespasses is this word that means violations. And it really has more the sense of of commission, the things that we do that we really should not do. 
Sins, in the original language, is a word here that means missing the mark or falling short of the standard that we're called to. It has more of the sense of omission, the kind of life that we're called to lead, the kinds of things that we're called to do and be, but we, but we don't measure up to. We, we omit. We fall short of. And left to ourselves, our lives, characterized by both of these things, by both the, the commission and the omission, really leaves us in a state of spiritual death. It's death because we're, we're devoid of the life that we're meant to experience as those who have been created by God and, and those who bear his image. But we're not only dead. Paul says we're also in bondage. We're dead and we're in bondage. We're in bondage to various powers, the world, the devil, and the flesh. And Paul highlights all three of those here in these words. So he first says that we follow the course of this world. And the world in the New Testament is shorthand for the people uh, and the cultures and the systems that really persist in their opposition to God. That's what, that's what it means when, when Paul or other New Testament writers reference the world. Uh, the collective power of that rebellion, of those systems, those people, those cultures, it's huge. And it rubs off on us. We're naive to think that that doesn't have an impact on us. And so we find ourselves left to ourselves in bondage to the world. We also follow the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. And that's another way that, that you can talk about Satan and the spiritual forces of evil. Paul says we're likewise in bondage to them. And at the end of this letter, we'll get there you know, in some weeks down the road, Paul's going to talk a lot about um, the unseen realities of this world, the cosmic forces of evil in the heavenly realms. And these cosmic forces of evil that, that exist, even though we don't see them, and that wage war uh, against humanity. So we're in bondage to, to that, to Satan and spiritual forces of evil. We're also in bondage to ourselves. The flesh is what Paul calls it. The passions of the flesh, the, the desires of the body and the mind. Left to ourselves, really, we're, we're just the sum of our appetites. We're just the sum of our appetites and the warped way that we pervert the good gifts of God, like time and money, and food, and sex, and all of these things that God gives as good gifts, but in our warped minds, we pervert, and we just become the sum of our appetites in bondage to our flesh. Okay, so this is already really bleak. We're, we are um, dead, we're in bondage, but it actually becomes bleaker, because not only are we dead and in bondage, we're also condemned. And Paul says here that we were, by our nature as fallen human beings, children of wrath. Okay, think about that phrase for a second. Children of wrath. That is, a, that is a family identity crisis. If you are a child of, of wrath. Uh, a couple years ago, I saw a documentary called Hitler's Children. I think it's still available on Netflix. I highly recommend it. It's really fascinating. Uh, it followed the lives of sons and daughters of different major leaders of the Nazi regime. So men like Heinrich Himmler and Hermann Goring followed the lives of their kids. And the documentary was, was all about the, the weight and the shame of being the, the, the son or daughter of one of the worst criminals in the history of the world, the, these men who were responsible as the architects of the, the genocide of millions of, of people. Many of these 
sons and daughters of these Nazi leaders, they chose not to have kids of their own simply because they wanted their family names just to die off with them. And if you want a, if you want a picture of what shame looks like, and that's a pretty good picture of what shame looks like, like willing to just not extend your family name because you don't want anyone to be associated with, with what they have been associated with because of who their parents were. Okay? Paul says we were children of wrath. We were subject, in other words, to God's wrath against sin. And God in his holiness, God in his perfection, he, he must do something with sin. He can't leave sin undealt with. And left to ourselves in this death, left to ourselves in this bondage, that's not good news for us. We find ourselves subject to that, to his just and holy wrath against sin. So all of this, right, this is nowhere near the end of the story, but we've got to pause here so that we actually capture how bad this is. We reject God. We, we spurn his good gifts, and it results in our spiritual death. It results in our own slavery, and it subjects us to his condemnation. Our condition is that bad. It's that bad. And this is really what the reformers tried to summarize with a concept uh, that they called total depravity. And some of you may or may not be, be familiar with that. I actually prefer to think about it and use a different term, pervasive depravity. Total depravity can kind of communicate this idea that, that we're as bad as we possibly could be, uh, which actually isn't the case. But we also need to equally see the teachings of Scripture that affirm that no matter how bad it gets for us, we still bear the image of God. And no matter how much the image of God in us gets marred or corrupted, we, we still bear it. Um, we also need to see in Scripture the, the concept of common grace, that God pours out aspects of his grace on all people. And through things like our conscience, through things like a, like a shared cultural morality or, or different governments, he actually restrains people from becoming as bad as they possibly could be. So the idea of pervasive depravity, that's really what the reformers were trying to get at when they talked about total depravity. It's more the idea that, that every facet of who we are, every part of our person and our humanity is affected by sin. So this death, this bondage, permeates everything. There's not a part of our lives that goes untouched by that. And it leaves us completely helpless to change ourselves or to change our condition. Okay? And that's the before. That's the before picture. So what is our hope? What is our hope? Well, as John Stott says, a radical disease requires a radical remedy. A radical disease requires a radical remedy. And the remedy we learn here from Ephesians 2 is the invasive love of God. So second, let's talk about that. The invasive love of God. Beginning of verse 4 here is the, is the major turning point in, these, in this text. And it begins with, with a two-word summary of the gospel. There's some great two-word summaries of the gospel, like Jesus saves. That's a great summary of the gospel in two words. This is a great one as well. But God. But God. It, it seems so simple, and yet it says so much. It says that, that this is the idea and the initiative of God. That he sees the, the hopelessness of our condition. And he knows our inability to do anything about it. As it's been famously said by many people, uh, dead people can't make themselves alive again. 
If we were dead in the trespasses and sins, we can't do anything about that. We're, we can't make ourselves alive again. And so God breaks through into our death. And that's what we're getting at when we use the word invasive, when we talk about the love of God. God's love goes right into the mess, right into that bleak condition. And while we were dead in, the tr- in our trespasses, it says in verse 5, God invades and meets us there in order to pull us out of it. The other reason that I'm using the word invasive is so that we remember what it actually takes to go from the before to, to the after in this. Borrowing, um, I'm borrowing this image from, from surgery. And when it comes to, to surgery, we opt for the most minimally invasive procedures. And there's been some really amazing advancements in, in modern medicine in recent decades that have introduced more and more of these minimally invasive surgeries. I was actually talking to somebody recently whose uh, relative was going in for heart surgery. And the way that they were going to go about doing this heart surgery, the doctors were going to make a small incision in her groin. Okay, that's not anywhere close to the heart, if you, if you haven't taken anatomy for a while. <laughs> a small incision in her groin, and through cameras and small instruments, make their way up to her heart, remove some blockages, repair some arteries that had been damaged. And that's amazing progress in the fields of science, in the fields of, of medicine. But here's the thing. There is no minimally invasive option for God's love. There's no minimally invasive option for God's love. There can be no minimally invasive procedure to cure the kind of pervasive death that characterizes us when we're left to ourselves. So God's love must be maximally invasive. And so much so that the language that the New Testament often uses when it describes people who have experienced this is that they are new creations. They're new creations. So God's love doesn't simply patch up a hole or two, it recreates. It recreates. And we heard it actually in our words of encouragement this morning. The prophet Ezekiel says that God rips out our old hearts of stone, our hard hearts of stone, and he puts within us new soft hearts of flesh. And you can't do that through a minimally invasive procedure like an incision in your groin and some cameras and some tools. In order to recreate us, in order to give us new hearts, in order to break through into all of these facets of our lives that have been permeated by sin, God's love has to be maximally invasive. And invasiveness like this hurts. Uh, It makes us uncomfortable. And it might even at times make us start to doubt God's intent or God's motives or to start to view God maybe as mean-spirited or even like sadistic. But lest we forget, lest our mind starts to go there, Paul, in this passage, saturates his words with these key phrases and words that remind us of God's heart and God's intent as he's doing this, as he's invading with his love. Words like like love, for example. God loves his people. And he loves them, it says, for no other reason than he simply does. A lot of you who are parents and have kids, you know, there's many things perhaps that you love about your kids. And there's also, I'm sure, things that you don't love about your kids. But those things are not the reason why you love them. Right? Healthy love in, in, in that kind of relationship is not because they have done certain things. You just love them because you do. Your heart is just so inclined. And that's the love that God has for his people. He just loves them because he does. His heart is inclined to them. Paul uses words like mercy 
So we, we deserve that pervasive death that we once walked in. We deserve that condemnation, but God doesn't give us what we actually deserve. It's the, the beauty of the unfairness of God. I'm glad he's not fair because he's merciful, and that's way better for me and for you. He's rich in mercy, Paul says. Paul says, Paul uses the word grace here. And grace is unmerited favor. So, so God doesn't just restrain punishment. He doesn't just withhold condemnation. He actually pours out his favor on us. He gives us all of the good gifts that we don't deserve. So he's not a God who just does like the minimum. He doesn't, he doesn't just say, hey, I didn't punish your sin. What more do you want? He actually says, not only am I going to forgive your sin and put away your condemnation, on top of that, here is all my favor. And here are all the riches of my presence. Here are all the riches of my grace poured out on you. And Paul says, kindness here. That God thinks of us, that we are not an afterthought to God. And that God is charitable and generous and warm and all that it means to be kind. And this is the heart, this is the character of God that carries us all the way from our pervasive death into the third thing that we see in this text, which is his exhaustive grace. So let's talk lastly, third, about exhaustive grace. We who were dead, we who were dead, God has made alive together with Christ. And being with Christ, being in Christ, or union with Christ, is one of the ways that, that Scripture often talks about our salvation. And it's really important that we, that we think about it that way because otherwise we might be prone to think that, that the life and death and resurrection of Jesus was some kind of impersonal transaction. It happened over here, it was impersonal, it was a transaction, and now it's applied to us. Okay? There is a transaction, it is applied to us, but we actually learn from Scripture that we are caught up into that same work by being united with him. So our old selves, our old nature... And that pervasive death, they are crucified with Christ. And our new selves rise from death with Him. And even more than that, it says that we are seated with Him in the heavenly places. We're actually in Scripture called co-heirs of Christ. And 2 Timothy actually talks about how we will reign with Christ. We actually, because of the work of Jesus and being united with Him, we actually get to inherit the same kingdom of God that Jesus is inheriting. We get, to, we get to enjoy and participate in his rule and reign called co-heirs and reigning with him. And if this text sounds familiar, if it has a familiar ring to it, it's because we read almost exactly the same thing last week at the end of Ephesians chapter 1. And that's where we, we saw God ra- raising Jesus from the dead and seating Jesus at his right hand and putting all power underneath him. And what we see here is that that very same power that God applied to to bring Jesus back from the dead, to raise him up, to give him rule and reign, God applies that to us. So not only does Jesus die and rise and ascend, we too in him die and rise and ascend as we are united with him. And then here's here's the real focal point of this. Verse 7 shows us 
just how huge the scope of this really is. So as we're united with Jesus in his death, in his resurrection, in his ascension, why? So that in the coming ages, God might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Okay, that is the exhaustive grace of God. The riches of his grace are immeasurable. And he will pour them out on us, not only now, but in the coming ages. Which means that it will take eternity for God to pour out his grace on you. It will take the rest of eternity for God to exhaust his grace on you, to pour out his grace on you. And that's the after photo. You know, we are recipients of this exhaustive grace of God. And it's exhaustive in terms of time. It's an eternal endeavor. It's an eternal endeavor of God lavishing his grace on us. It's also exhaustive in terms of its transformation. All of that pervasive depravity, every aspect of our fallen and broken humanity is invaded by the love of God and it's washed over with his grace again and again and again and again until in eternity there's nothing more left to be washed away. But even then, he continues to pour his grace out on us. So there'll be a day that we no longer need forgiveness, but there won't ever come a day that we won't be, we won't be met with the grace of God poured out on us. It will take truly eternity for him to pour that out on us. So we see in this passage, you know, in a short and concise way, but in a really beautiful way, the extreme contrast between how bad it is, how bad it was when we're separated from Christ, and then how unbelievably good it is when we are in Christ. And often in life, we aim for midpoints between extremes, you know, all things in moderation. So we aim for midpoints. So, you know, don't, don't live at the gym 24 hours a day, but don't also live on your couch and watch TV. Exercise sometimes. You know, that's moderation. That's finding a midpoint. And this is not one of those situations where you look for a midpoint in moderation. If you try to find a midpoint between pervasive death and exhaustive grace, you're going to miss both. You're going to miss both, and consequently, you're going to cheapen and weaken and water down the radical goodness of the gospel. So if, if our condition when we're separated from Christ isn't that big a deal, then consequently the invasive love of God and the exhaustive grace of God are also not that big of a deal. But if our condition is, is that bad and that hopeless and that bleak, then likewise, so are the invasive love of God and the exhaustive grace of God that amazing and that good. And the more that we see that, the more clearly we're perceiving the gospel. As we recognize this, and as we more and more own it as the story of our own lives, there's some very specific things that will begin to happen in you and in me. And I just want to briefly mention a couple of those the things that happen in us as we own this and see this more clearly, we own this as our story. One 
is that this will kill your self-righteousness. It will kill your self-righteousness. The only possible way to maintain a self-righteous posture as a Christian is to have a small view of your own sin. So when you start to think, as I think a lot of us inevitably do, I know I do, you start to have these thoughts like, well, what about so-and-so? You know, have you seen what, what he or she is doing? My sin's nothing compared to that. What you've done in that moment, you've just minimized your sin and maximized someone else's. And you've stepped closer to this non-existent midpoint where you begin to think, hey, maybe I actually deserve a little bit of the love and the grace of God. I know I at least deserve it more than that person because I'm doing better than they are. I'm a better person than they are. To which the Apostle Paul here would respond, this is completely a gift of God's grace. And none of it is your own doing. He says, none of it is a result of works. There's no room to boast. There's no room to boast. There's no room to to jockey for position in minimizing your sin and maximizing someone else's sin and elevating yourself above them in that way. The only place that that paradigm exists is in our warped hearts and minds. That paradigm is not the way the economy of God's grace and mercy works. It it only exists in in our warped thinking. So when we see the extremes and we don't aim for moderation or a midpoint, it will destroy our self-righteousness. And that's a good thing. The second thing this will do is we own this as our story more and more. It will create compassion through commonality. It will create compassion through commonality. So if there's no room for boasting, if there's no room to to jockey for position or be self-righteous, then we are actually a lot more like each other than we often think that we are. And all of these things that divide people, race and socioeconomic status and how much you've suffered and what your life has looked like or not looked like, all of that pales in comparison to the commonality we share as those who are stuck in this condition of pervasive death left to ourselves, but who also, through God's love, can experience his exhaustive grace. And this is so critical for us to see if we're ever going to authentically care for each other. And I've actually heard Jen White articulate this really well on on a number of occasions, so I'm indebted to her for helping me make this more concrete in my thinking. But this commonality pushes us to compassion and to to genuine care for one another. That's true for us within the church. That's also true for us as we try to serve and, and be faithfully present in our world and serve people outside the church. So just as a small example, a lot of us serve together uh, at New Hope Ministries. A lot of you are involved in that. We serve there together. Well, if, as we serve at New Hope, all we can think about when we're there, if, if all we can think about when we, when we interact with the guests who are there is you know, the terrible choices that they've made, the kinds of bad decisions that they've made that have landed themselves in this position, then we'll, we'll have missed the gospel. We'll really have missed a critical implication of the gospel. Because if what Paul says here is true, and we're actually this much like each other, then the only reason that you and I aren't in the same position, or even a worse position, is because for whatever reason, God's grace has preserved me or preserved you from my sin and from the consequences of my terrible choices in a way that for whatever reason, he didn't preserve that person from theirs. God's grace in my life has looked this way and it's looked different for them. But the difference is never me. And that's the point. 
The difference is never me or how smart or how disciplined I am or you are. The difference is God's grace. And as we recognize that, our hearts really will begin to overflow with compassion for people because we look at other people and regardless of how shipwrecked their life is, what we see when we look at them is me. That's me, but for the grace of God. And then finally, owning this as your story will fuel active obedience in your life. So this invasive love, it actually compels and it, and it drives a response from us. Our identities are altered in this, but not merely for our own enjoyment and our own benefit, but also so that we might actually be sent out in light of that new identity. So this passage here concludes not just rejoicing in the great work that God has done and what that means for me, but also in what that means for our role in the world. Verse 10 says this, that we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So as God's grace works in us, it also works through us. And it drives this outward, as we like to say at Liberty, living, speaking, and serving as the very presence of Jesus. God's grace works in us, but then works through us to drive that kind of response. And the idea here of of walking puts a bookend on this text and brings the whole thing full circle. It started out with Paul saying, once we walked in death, once we walked in our trespasses and our sins, now we walk as new creations in Christ. We experience his grace and we walk in, we step into the good works that he has prepared in advance for us to do. So these are the before and after photos of the Christian life. Once, once we walked in pervasive death, and it was that bad, in Christ we live in exhaustive grace, and it's that good. And it comes through the maximally invasive love of God. And this is the, this is the great salvation that has been accomplished for us by Jesus. So may we own that as our own story and may our self-righteousness die and may our compassion grow and may it fuel a lifetime of active obedience. Amen. Let me pray for us. Oh, what a great salvation you have bought for us, Jesus. That we who were dead and condemned and in bondage have been made alive. That you have intervened and invaded and broken up the, the, the shipwreck of our own lives. And you have done that because you just were so inclined in your love and in your mercy and in your grace and in your kindness. And you have invited us into this exhaustive grace that you will pour out on us till eternity future. And so we pray, Jesus, that we would see in this just the amazing contrast of, of who we were compared to who we are, and that we would rejoice in you for that work that you have done, 
that as we, as we really own this as our own story, as we put down our efforts to try to jockey for position, as we put down our efforts to try to earn some kind of favor from you, that you would do deep work in our hearts that compels us to love and serve people as those who need the, the very same invasive love that we are so dependent upon. And as we come each week to this table, but, but especially today, we see at this table the cost. We see at this table that your invasive love meant that you would bear the, the penalty for sin on our behalf. That you, would, that you would shed your blood in our place. That we might experience dying with you, rising with you, becoming new creations in you. So may we come, may we come with great joy in our hearts as we see who we were compared to who we are now in you. And we pray this in your name. Amen.